Hey, I'm Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. No more contact tracing in Toronto. President Trump takes a joyride. And racialized communities have higher positive COVID results. All of that is coming up. Let's get to it. Where to keep your focus? It is almost impossible because you just can't tear your eyes off of what's happening south of the border. The White House press secretary in the last hour announcing, as you heard in the news, she's positive for COVID-19. Kaylee McEnany making that announcement, putting that release out today. And then immediately, a number of White House reporters tweeted photos of, oh, here she is. Just yesterday, briefing reporters, no mask. No mask. Uh, And the response from the White House is, oh, there, you're far enough away. Don't worry. Of course, we're keeping our eye on the situation south of the border. We are expecting an update from Donald Trump's doctors on his condition. Here's what I'm going to predict exactly what's going to happen. I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. The doctor is going to come out and say something. And then a good portion of the world will not believe it. And it'll be called into question. And it'll be dissected. Timelines, graphs will be sent out. It'll be quite a thing all day. And in our next segment, we're going to talk about it from a Canadian perspective. What does it all mean for us? What does it all mean for us as we watch what's unfolding south of the border? And we're going to talk about that that little joyride that Donald Trump took yesterday perspective on it, but let's get to the numbers because here they are, 615 cases with 38,000 tests. You know why that's important today? It's important because it's meaningless. Now follow my logic here because it's meaningless and the fact that it's meaningless is vitally important. So your test number, as I said, 38,200. Here's your pending number. Very important. And that is 68,000 tests still pending. Now, that is down from the high that we saw on Friday of 90,000 pending tests. So that's a little bit better. But still, we have this enormous backlog that just continues. And here's our hospitalization number. Again, this is a lagging indicator. So point plus 7 in terms of hospitalizations plus 2 to our ICUs. So those numbers continue to tick away upwards. And we know that this is what happens as cases go up. Then two weeks after that, you get hospitalizations going up. And then sometimes a week or so after that, that's when you get the ICUs going up. And we have lost the plot here in Ontario now. It is an absolute mess Because as I mentioned, that 615 case number means virtually nothing when you look at the fact that we continue to have this lag time that grows more and more by the day. So now it's taking us longer and longer to actually get to those positive cases. And then when we put out a number like 615, it really probably is indicating something from maybe Wednesday or Thursday of last week. So for weeks, the number of pending cases has crept up. For weeks, the lineups have snaked out from the assessment centers. And belatedly, we get a change in messaging about who is supposed to get tested. Health officials have been calling on the Ford government for more than a week, for weeks, plural, saying, 
Change the messaging. Quit saying everybody who needs a test, go get a test. And then finally we get that. Belatedly, a change in the symptom list for kids going to school or daycare. We saw what British Columbia did. The questions came for the Ontario government day after day after day. What are we going to do about this? Are we going to follow suit? Because there's lineups. There's tons of lineups. There's kids in lineups. Parents taking the day off work, standing in a lineup for multiple hours with their kids to get a test because they got to get them back into class. So we changed the symptom list. Now we have this new flow chart in terms of symptoms. So now if you have a runny nose, that doesn't immediately mean that you're out of school forever. And then the change in messaging or the clarification, that was the quote from the health table, clarification, kids don't need a test to return to school. Well, that's a surprise to all of those parents in lines. Belatedly, we get to that. So now where are we? Well, now we're at a point where the province has now paused all walk-in testing at centers. Why? Because we're trying to get caught up on that backlog. And then when the centers reopen tomorrow, of course, tests will be appointment only. Good luck trying to get one. Because a quick look around at some of the websites for different testing at different centers, we're talking already several days, you're into the future where you're not going to be able to get one. So if you want one, if you need one right now, if you think you need one right now, you're not going to be able to get one. And as a result, we are totally flying blind in this province. Here's Dr. Suman Chakrabadi, an infectious disease specialist at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga, talking about the testing lag and what it does to our ability to know what is actually going on in our community. It's just hard to know what's actually happening there. And now you're probably going to see in the next couple of days there's a significant drop in the numbers, and we shouldn't take that as any kind of relief because there still is increased um, transmission, and we need to do something about that in the next you know, one to two weeks. That is Dr. Suman Chakrabarti. So the numbers are meaningless. That number you see today, oh, hey, that's down from 700, the high, 615, that's not bad, meaningless. Whatever the number is tomorrow, maybe it's 500, meaningless. So don't put your faith in those numbers that are coming out, those daily numbers, because we are absolutely flying blind in the province of Ontario. We don't know where the virus is spreading. We don't know how fast. We have stopped contact tracing in the city of Toronto. And when you hear that, you've got to think to yourself, well, now this is not good. And here is the chair of Toronto's Board of Health, Joe Cressy, talking about why the city of Toronto has said, now, well, that's it. Forget about it. We got nothing more with the contact tracing. We have a backlog of nearly 80,000 tests still to be processed. And so by the time we start contact tracing, well, it's already behind because of those backlogs. And so if we are going to get a handle on this pandemic, if we are going to beat this second wave and keep our schools open, we're going to need some immediate measures now. And that's why we've raised the alarm bells around contact tracing. And so we have a situation, that was Joe Cressy, by the way, the chair of the Toronto Board of Health, talking about the backlog, and that's why contact tracing is not happening at the uh, Toronto Public Health, with ex- some exceptions, of course. There are some uh, significant exceptions where they are doing some contact tracing. But, you know, just generally, if there's a positive number or there's a pot of c- positive case, like one of these cases in Toronto, 289, that's the official number in the last 24 hours, of those 289, I mean, a bunch of those, is like it's too late. What, what's the point? 
What is the point? And yet, I want you to listen to the message from the Ford government in the House today. When asked about, here we are, second wave. We knew it was coming, and it's here, and everything that I have just outlined for you. Step behind. A call for the government to do something, days later, sometimes weeks later, they do it. You just heard Joe Cressy saying, raising the alarm. The city of Toronto, the medical officer of health in this city, wants the province to go further, does not feel comfortable going further herself, wants the government to do something. Here is the deputy premier of this province and the minister of health defending the government's record as it confronts this second wave. We listened to what you were saying all last week, indicating that people are waiting outside in long lineups. It is getting colder. We responded quickly. So now we're changing to appointment-based testing so that people will have a better idea when they need to go. And they will be screened before they come in to make sure that they are um, eligible to receive a test. I got some of that on my shoe, unfortunately. Now what am I going to do? I stepped right into that. Thanks, Deputy Premier. I want to stoop and scoop that stuff. So what's a shock that it's getting colder? That is, did that, did that come out of the blue for you? Their lineups? Wow. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Heavens to Betsy. Lineups. Well, we've, we're right on top of that. Here we are now. Weeks and weeks after lineups at testing centers, lead the evening news here on Global, night after night. Oh, you know what? It's getting kind of nippy out there. It's a bit chilly. That's that's why we've changed to this appointment thing. Sure, it's chilly. That's the reason. We have to get a hold of this. We have to be able to get back to a point where we can actively contact trace listen do you remember in the first wave at at the height of the first wave what did we hear again and again and again what are the keys to being able to keep the virus in check two things testing and tracing and the testing well we're just pretty much going to stop that because we got it all we got lots hey we're full up and the tracing well By the time we get around to the testing, the tracing's pointless. So, you know, what can you do? I wish I had better news on this Monday about the situation in the province. I wish that I could have come on here and just ranted about Donald Trump and his his crazy drive. Because, I, you know, there's something weirdly comforting about watching that madness unfold south of the border. I, I, you know, obviously it's not comforting, but I, perhaps you know what I mean. I'm not expressing it well. It, it, it at least takes my attention away from what's happening here in our backyard, which is very, very worrying. We're watching developing news south of the border. As you heard at the uh, beginning of the program, the White House press secretary, uh, Kaylee McEnany, has now tested positive for COVID-19. There are questions about when she may have contracted the, the virus. She said in a statement that she had been repeatedly tested, uh, but then tested positive this morning, and she has no symptoms. And, of course, all of this follows just uh, an extraordinary weekend Uh, south of the border, especially yesterday as Donald Trump leaves the hospital, uh, leaves the military hospital where he has been staying since Friday 
to drive out and wave at some supporters. Here's what that sounded like. And if you haven't seen the visuals that accompany this sound, what it shows is Trump in his uh, black SUV uh, being driven. He is wearing a mask. He's waving to people, uh, waving to supporters. Uh, There has been condemnation of this, uh, just called a publicity stunt, something that was going to put uh, the Secret Service members who are driving the vehicle at risk. Here, however, is a different perspective. Here is a perspective of a Trump supporter who watched the president drive by. God bless our president. I will die for him. I will die for that man happily. I will die for him. Anybody want to mess with him, you mess with me first. He is a hero, that man. What does all of this mean for Canadians? As you heard the Trump supporter there, and there are many of them. And the news that they get is often very, very different than the news that Democratic-leaning Americans get, or sometimes even Canadians get this side of the border. What does it all mean to discuss it from a couple of different perspectives? I am pleased to welcome to the program Lisa Kirby, who is a CEO of Blackbird Strategies, and Zara Saltani, who is a senior consultant at Loyalist Public Affairs. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Alan. Lisa, I will begin with you. What does this mean for Canada other than just something to be glued to the television while there's limited sports on? Well, I think it has great implications for Canada as we move forward. I think we're, what, now 29 days from Election Day in the United States. Uh, We know that uh, coronavirus is, uh, cases are climbing in the United States, we know that um, violence is escalating. We know, you know, you played that clip of the Trump supporter outside of the Walter Reed Hospital last night. And I have to say, you know, they don't sound like supporters anymore. They sound like members of a cult, you know, and, and that's part of the problem in that uh, the politics that are happening in the United States are so different than what's happening here. And we, not, we don't know yet what the implications for Canada is going to be because we don't yet know how the election is going to fall out. And part of that, of course, they're our largest trading partner. We have the largest undefended border uh, in the world. Yeah, there's so much here. Zara, to you, when you saw the visuals of Trump uh, being driven around, I wonder what your reaction was. I, I said in the preamble that you know, where you get your news sometimes can inform your perception of what you see. I'm wondering what you saw. Um, for me, it wasn't much, it, it wasn't very surprising. I, I mean, he's the president of the, um, you, you, you can argue it, but he's the president of the free world. He's the, he's the president of the United States of America. And it is, um, to me, I, it wasn't surprising that he would come out and show that he's a strong and that he's well, because, um, you know, this is a very serious and unpredictable illness. And um, 
you know, to, as, as Lisa said, 29 days away from the election uh, for a man who's 70 plus years old and is clinically considered to be obese. Uh, this is this is serious. And he wants to come across as strong. But from Sarah, from, from the perspective of, you know, trying to show that leadership, I mean, there there's one takeaway from it that says this was reckless and uh, ego-driven, and the other sort of what you're sort of saying maybe is that this is more about showing strength. Absolutely. And, I mean, uh, I'm not saying this is a, a good or bad strategy, uh, Democrats will definitely try to portray him as reckless and as someone who's putting everyone, an entire country, in fact, at risk and putting his staff at risk, especially, you know, with his press secretary now testing positive for COVID. But uh, but I, I guess the Republican strategy here is to show that he is a strong and he's quite literally fighting and going to defeat COVID. Um and that's the image they want to show, I guess, you know, being closer to the election. But I think there's one thing that we need to note here. This isn't a Republican strategy. This is Donald Trump having a narcissistic meltdown inside Walter Reed about how he wants to be able to go out there and wave to his supporters, which includes the founder of the Proud Boys who was out there. So... Yeah, this isn't a strategy. This this is Trump putting people at unnecessary risk. You have doctors from the Walter Reed Hospital in which Trump is staying, saying that what he is doing is reckless and putting people at risk. You know, that drive-by they did in the presidential vehicle, that's a hermetically sealed vehicle, and there were Secret Service agents sitting in there with him. You know, those agents would take a bullet from him, and as someone said, but they didn't think that he would be the one pointing the gun. You know, that this is absolutely reckless. And now they're coming out today, the Trump campaign, this is the Republican strategy, is that they're saying that Biden, because he has not contracted COVID, doesn't have the same level of experience now that Trump does in able to battle this disease. Well, Trump has had seven months to get this disease under control, and he has had no ability to do it. And now, to your point, you know, he is, I believe, 74 years old, uh, clinically obese. He has all these risk factors. And everyone that was around him, everyone in his orbit, no one isolated after the first case was, was found positive. And now, basically, what we have is we have more infections coming out of the White House than we did for the entirety of Washington, D.C. last week. Let's just go up a... a couple thousand feet here, because I, I want to talk about something that I think Canadians don't always appreciate, which is that, you know, we, we in Canada, we tend to favor Democratic presidents. But the evidence is that Democrats tend to be more trade protectionist. And I appreciate, obviously, that Donald Trump and his administration has been extremely protectionist and, and uh, against Canada. Just look at the aluminum tariffs. But just from a from a Canadian perspective. I'll go to you. Are we wrong to think that a Biden administration, if we get to that, is going to change anything from a trade perspective? Um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't I haven't seen uh, many policies that suggest they would be 
more pro-trade or they would be better for Canada in terms of our trade relations and economy. So I can't speak on that. But but uh, but but to your point, um, I, I I agree. You know, Trump has been uh, more protectionist and, and populist, not necessarily, you know, conservative and 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 a free market person in the way that um, you know we have historically benefited uh, from. But um, but with 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 Biden, um, I mean, so far. I haven't seen anything that suggests uh, he would be necessarily good for um, for Canada or the economy in general. Lisa, any thoughts on that? Are we wrong to say let's let's put all the chips behind Joe Biden? I think that you know if you were to poll Canadians, I think that's where we would show up. Well, I mean, I think you know most people at this point in or I would hope most most thinking people at this point would vote for a paperclip before they voted for Donald Trump. You know, this, this is a problem. And Donald Trump isn't just not good for America. He's, he's not good for the rest of the world. And we, we know that because hardcore Republicans, lifelong Republicans in the United States, have decided to throw their support behind Joe Biden because at the end of the day, Joe Biden, while he's a Democrat, he is a moderate, and those Republicans know that he is better for the United States of America than Donald Trump is. So when you have legions of lifelong Republicans switching allegiance, not even just switching allegiance, but actively campaigning against Donald Trump, that tells you all you need to know about what's happening within the United States. Canada, for sure, is better off with a Democrat particularly Joe Biden in the presidency as compared to Donald Trump. And I think Americans will be better off with uh, President Joe Biden than the one that they currently have. We'll leave it there. Lisa Kirby is CEO with Blackbird Strategies. Zara Sultani is senior consultant at Loyalist Public Affairs. Thank you to you both. Thank you so much. As we peer through the numbers, the numbers that we are getting from public health, from the Ontario Health Table, what does it tell us about where COVID-19 is spreading? If you join me at the beginning of the program about an hour ago, I gave you the overall numbers, which are 615 new cases in the last 24 hours with 38,200 tests, and also heard me say that that number is generally meaningless. And the reason that that number is meaningless is we continue to have a substantial lag time. There are still 68,000 tests pending. That number got up to as high as 90,000 on Friday. Gives you a sense of how far out we are in terms of real-time data. And, of course, you've also heard likely by this point that the City of Toronto, the Public Health Department, the City of Toronto, is saying it's basically canceling all contact tracing because by the time they get a positive test result going around trying to find those person's contacts, it has been so long since the actual test was administered, it is virtually pointless. So does that mean that COVID-19 is just spreading just widely out in the community? Or does it more specifically mean that COVID-19 is spreading amongst certain portions of our city and certain demographics? Is that information that we are not seeing? 
To get a better perspective on that, I am pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Karshef Perzada, who is an emergency room physician in Toronto. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. Thank you. You tweeted this morning something that has got a lot of attention right now, and that is a breakdown of various regions in the city, specifically a portion of the city. What did you tweet this morning? So I was able to get a a leaked snapshot of some internal data by Toronto Public Health, and it's showing that test, what we call test positivity rate, is very high in the northwest part of the city. So around the Jane and Finch area, a lot of heavy industry, a lot of apartment buildings. So typically what this means is that, you know, when we were in the summer lull, we weren't seeing that many cases. If you tested 100 people, maybe 1% of them would be positive, and that's a great thing. 3% is considered uh, not great, and that's New York hit that, and they've shut down two boroughs, uh, Queens and, and Brooklyn, based on that number. Well, what the data I saw this morning when it was sent to me was shocking. We are at 11% in parts of the city in the Northwest. What parts, can you, just for those who are not so familiar with Toronto, give you a better sense of what we're talking about here area-wise? So there would be anywhere from Rexdale, um, Janet Finch, um, Wilson Heights, um, the the North St. Jamestown area. So it's a large area, a lot of uh, factories there, a lot of apartment buildings, a lot of community housing. It's generally an area that is lower income, uh, relies heavily on public transit, and predominantly um, uh, uh, racial minorities live there as well. You mentioned the percentages um, and 3%, as you talked about in New York City. I noticed that the WHO, from their guide, says anything over 5% in terms of positivity would require uh, measures and interventions. Are, are you saying that there should be some interventions you know, in those neighborhoods? Definitely. I think there should be. There, um, you know, there needs to be more transparency. This data shouldn't have had to be leaked. It should have been public information. Every person in every neighborhood should know what's going on across the city and across the province. And this stuff should not be kept secret. Um, I think what should happen is, uh, you know, we need to at least start some kind of localized shutdown uh, based on this information. And, you know, really follow the, the best example, which is New York City right now. New York City had the best school opening plan in North America and now they're being the most cautious when it comes to managing this. And I think they're going to do, you know, after a disastrous start to this crisis, I think they're going to come out of the second wave much better than we are. Dr. Pirzada, uh, what's your experience been in the ER? In the last week, we are seeing a surge of patients. I personally have seen four critically ill COVID patients. Two uh, had to go to the ICU, and that's, and these are from these neighborhoods. I was quite surprised, and we were all kind of taken aback at the rapidity of how many cases are coming in now. And is there a difference in the cases or the demographics of the cases than from the first wave? They're about the same, I would say. And what is the, the data that you have released today in terms of the way that the virus is spreading, spreading through what are traditionally seen as lower-income neighborhoods? What does that tell you? It tells me um, that we haven't learned the lessons uh, that we should have learned the last time. We should have been more careful about requiring uh, preventative measures like masks in apartment buildings and in public transit. I know it's they're required, but that's not enforced in a lot of places. The mask requirement in workplaces really only came into effect in the last week. 
And I think that's a bit too late now for this. Uh, we need to be more aggressive about these preventative measures. And now that we've reached a stage, we need to take the, we need to be aggressive about shutting things down and uh, closing areas that are really risky right now. So when you hear the call from the medical officer of health for Toronto saying that that he, she wants uh, Dr. Arlene Davila wants the province to go further, you would second that call. Oh, definitely, and I think you know she's doing everything she can. And I, you know, I understand the politicians are all in a very tough spot. Like they have to balance a lot of conflicting needs. But I think now that the information is there, we need to really take that next step and start initiating some targeted shutdowns now. The Premier is coming up in a few minutes. If I was able to ask a question on your behalf, if you were on hold right now, as reporters are as we speak, waiting to ask the Premier a question, what would you ask? But will you consider moving to Stage 2 in areas where community spread is increasing rapidly? I'll tell you what he'll say. He says he'll say, I take my advice from the medical officer of health, and then if Dr. Williams is there, Dr. Williams will come up and answer at length, and no one will be certain what he's mean, what he's talking about. And that, that's the problem. Like, you need much... This is the second time we're doing this. You know, the first time we got through, we did a little bit better than we expected. But we need stronger, clearer, and better communication from our medical officer of health. We've, we're seeing that from the Toronto officer, Dr. Davila. We're seeing it in Ottawa from Dr. Etches. Maybe they should be in charge of this effort because they seem to be being more proactive about this. Dr. Pirzada, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for the perspective, and thank you for releasing that information today. Thank you. Thank you as well. Uh, that is Dr. Kashef Pirzada, who is an emergency room physician in Toronto. And you can follow him on Twitter, where you can see the uh, the outline of the information that he's talking about. Uh, and that information shows, as I look at the breakdown, various areas of the city. Now, I cannot source it or verify it because it can, I, I, I cannot uh, independently confirm that that information is accurate. That is hopefully something that's going to be asked of the government today. It certainly looks legitimate. It's a screen cap. It's not like just, you know, some numbers written down. It's a screen cap, and it does show a high percentage of positivity, overall positivity, uh, well above the 5% mark in a number of Rexdale areas of Rexdale, uh, areas of Rexdale, where some, in some instances, it is over 10%, double digits, and that is very frightening. And hopefully we'll get some kind of answer from the Premier today as he speaks at 1 o'clock today with the uh, daily update. And I will tell you that the Minister of Education will also be there. And perhaps there will be questions about why it is we allow teachers to go from school to school to school. In fact, that is exactly what happened, that report coming out from the Toronto Star over the weekend, that students from two classes at a Catholic school are in isolation now after a music teacher who rotates among multiple schools tested positive for COVID-19. Like we didn't learn something from long-term care. Like we didn't learn from long-term care that sending workers from one home to another, that that was a recipe for disaster. And now we have the exact same thing happening in the school system. And what is the answer to that going to be? Is the answer going to be similar to the rest of the answers about the second wave, which is, we're doing a great job, folks. We're doing a great job. 
it's going to be a tough day for the premier with a number of those questions as again again the the key takeaway for you if you are thinking about a test is you can't get one at an assessment center because the assessment centers are shut down they're not taking anybody today because they're trying to clear that black backlog and then as of tomorrow they go to appointment only and if you're looking for an appointment that may be difficult to find you can still get tested uh, if you can go to a pharmacy, if you're asymptomatic, symptomatic people do not go to pharmacies. You still need an appointment for a pharmacy as well, and they're expanding the number of pharmacies that are doing it. But the last I checked, and this is anecdotal, but the last I checked, uh, the wait time for them, again, several days. So it will take some time to get a test, and it's going to take some time for that test to actually be processed and for that test result to come back to you. And all of that is very concerning. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.